advisory to those who are not animal lovers, open to new ideas, or interested in integrative holistic healthcare for your pets, and believe that prescription diet is the best food for your pet. This podcast may offend your sensibilities. Have you ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang, and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world right now. This is Amrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today's episode is with Dr. Emily Yonker, a creative thinker and problem solver, holistic mother, herbalist, integrative vet who also does emergency veterinary medicine and who believes that everything is figureoutable. She is an inspiration to others as she makes conscious decisions in how she and her family live their lives in the most meaningful and authentic way possible. This is her story. Who is Dr. Emily Yanker, please? Uh, oh, wow. Uh, start, starting off with the big ones. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay um, Dr. Emily Yunker is a, an integrative medicine veterinarian um, who also works emergency veterinary medicine. Um, and integrative integrate, I think is a good word here because, um, I, I like to choose from all of the options at my disposal to find what's best for that patient and that client. So, um, I view animals, um, in the context of their human relationships. I consider that to be part of holistic medicine. Um, And so um, it's never a simple question to just say, what is the best way to approach this disease? It is what is the best way to approach this entire system here, this animal and their relationships and their environment and their well-being. Um, And that includes a disease diagnosis most of the time, but it's not just about that. Um, and so my, and for, in particular, I, I really like Western herbs. That's what my kind of intro has been into holistic medicine. Um, but I do work with a few Chinese herbs that I've kind of figured out and I'm comfortable with. Um, and then I work with a lot of diet and supplements and that's kind of where the, the raw food side of it comes in is I'm, I'm a 
big proponent for a, a lifestyle and a diet as close to what we can get to be physiologic and biologically appropriate for each animal. And um, so, yeah, so my, who am I? I am a veterinarian who tries to meet the needs of animals and people who love them in a holistic and biologically appropriate way. There you go. That's not too bad. <laughs> and were you always into animals? What, what would you like? What, yeah. what, what were you like when you yeah. were the wee one? <laughs> okay, so the story goes, and I actually don't remember this exactly, but I can believe it. The story goes that when I was something like two years old, I asked my mother, is there such thing as a doctor for animals? Because that is what I want to be. Um, and I basically never changed my mind. I know a lot of kids who kind of went through a, I want to be a veterinarian phase and they kind of got over it and I never did. <laughs> <laughs> um, more specifically, I actually remember why I asked that question. And I didn't remember this until just a couple years ago. Um, I just sort of thought it was a funny story my mom told. And then, and here, this goes back to parenting. Okay. So I was watching cartoons with my son while I was pregnant with my daughter. And um, we were watching a show called David the Gnome, which was a 1970s kids show that aired on Nickelodeon here in the States, but is actually a production of, I think, Spain. I think it's Spain. Um, and it's literally about this little like forest gnome who's a doctor and he goes around helping forest creatures and sometimes people and sometimes domestic animals. And the very first episode, he uses acupuncture and herbs on a goat. And I remembered that episode. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, David the gnome is why I wanna be a veterinarian. <laughs> And specifically, why I wanted to be a holistic veterinarian who understood herbs and acupuncture. <laughs> oh, gosh. That... <laughs> yes. So who's my greatest life influence? David the Gnome. <laughs> and you follow your heart. And you follow yeah, your heart. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> oh, wow. And you, and you never deviated from that. I mean, like since young, I want to be a vet. I want to be a vet. No, no I never did. Um, I, it's funny because I would come up against, I mean, there were plenty of obstacles. So don't get me wrong. Like um, I wasn't particularly good at math as a kid. And I realized later it's completely the way it was presented in schools and still is presented in schools. I don't actually have a problem with math. I have a problem with sitting down and doing repetitive worksheets with clearly defined right and wrong answers that then I am graded on and told that if it's less than hundred percent, then I have, you know, somehow negligent in my education. That's what I had a problem with. Um, and so I preferred the subjective, um, the subjective stuff better. I liked writing and, and things like that. Um, but I knew because people kept telling me, well, if you want to go to vet school, you have to be good at math and science. And so I was like, fine, then I will be good at math and science. And I, <laughs> and so I, I basically just figured out ways to be good at math and science, even though I didn't like it and I wasn't really naturally drawn to it. And um, I have frequently said, 
I am possibly the only truly like type B personality veterinarian I've ever met. Um, meaning like I am not type A, never have been, never will be. I, I am not a perfectionist. I do what I need to do to get what I need. And that's, just, that's fine. Um, I, I don't care to be the top of the class. I don't care to be the straight A student, but I absolutely did it because I needed to get into vet school. It was a means to an end. Um, so yeah, no, I, I never really deviated. I figured out what I had to do and I did it. Yeah. So you're like, you're like a very creative kind of person. You're a dreamer. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I, I've always really loved creative writing. I actually double majored for a little while in college in um, British literature along with pre-med. Um, and uh, even though I'm not particularly skilled as an artist, I really enjoy the arts and arts and crafts. I did theater for a while. Um, and um, yeah, I, I've, I, I, I have a blog simply because I want to have an outlet to be able to write about the things I care about. Um, and I mean, I could journal too, but somehow doing it on a website where I think at least somebody might see it <laughs> feels feels good to me because <laughs> you're published right <laughs> there you, that's right there you go I'm published <laughs> so well so what was it like when you finally went into vet school because it's quite mm. I mean like from what I hear about vet school it's a lot of studying I mean like a lot of memory work and, mm-hmm. and it's, yeah. it's hard work mm-hmm. I mean how how did you how did you fit in Um, so it's interesting. I mean, it took me a long time to actually get to vet school. Um, partially like a lot of people, I actually did not get in on my first try. Only about 50% of veterinarians actually get in on their first try. And I did not. Um, and when I was trying to figure out what I needed to do to my resume to make it better for the second time around, um, I realized that in my case, I needed to sort of prove that I could do grad school level work. Um, and I felt like I there I felt like I had a really strong 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 application but they I mean they have arbitrary criteria and so I was like all right fine I can do some grad school work so I actually went to grad school and took a pretty full course load I did not actually get a master's degree but I got a lot of coursework um, probably more than the equivalent of a master's degree um, and so I actually developed a lot of really positive study habits during that time so um, I already came in having figured out how to do this whole grad school thing. And so even though it was more, it was more intense than grad school, it was just kind of more the same I'd already been doing. That said, it was definitely the hardest period of my life. I was actually already married when I went to vet school and we were doing a long distance relationship because my husband was in the military. And so we only saw each other about once a month, except during um, summers and uh, winters. And um, on the plus side, that means I literally had like nothing to do. It's not like I was trying to date while I was in vet school or something, (laughs) like most of my classmates were. Uh, I literally just like sat around and watched Netflix and studied for four years. Um, And uh, so that was, I mean, if you kind of parse down your life and simplify it, you can focus like laser focus like that. Um, I never fit in in vet school though. Let's be clear. Um, 
<laughs> I went into vet school knowing already that I wanted to be a holistic veterinarian. And I knew that the curriculum did not support me in that. Um, and I knew I wanted to support natural feeding and I knew that they were gonna give me all kind of swag and try to convince me otherwise. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I knew it was gonna be an uphill battle to somehow figure out how to be myself and get through vet school. Like I had to play their game to get where I wanted to go, even though I completely saw, I mean, I could completely see the wizard on the other side of the curtain, you know, like very Wizard of Oz. Um, and so I kind of just said, I'm gonna make it what I need it to be. And I connected with a professor, Dr. Barbara Kempinen at Auburn University, um, who was doing herbal studies. She's not a veterinarian, she's a PhD, but she was studying herbs. Um, and together we started an integrative medicine student club at Auburn and we brought in speakers. We already had um, a couple of connections um, to people like former Auburn grads and people who are associated with the American Holistic Veterinary Medicine Association. And so those people came and spoke. Um, and then that led to me being a student participant in the AHVMA. Actually, I, I wrote an essay and got a scholarship to be able to attend a conference, which was oh, pivotal. Like being able to be around veterinarians who were living it, who were, that was really who they were and they weren't hiding it was so validating. It was so important for me. Um, and then some of the connections that I made allowed me to keep that student club running. So all kinds of these um, supplement and herb companies like sponsored student lunches and speakers and stuff. And so I was able to bring in what I needed. And then my junior year, Dr. Kempinen managed to arrange to have um, an complementary and alternative veterinary medicine elective. And so there were eight of us who actually took that elective and we even got to bring in speakers. Um, I mean, from all over, we had, we went on herb walks and we made things and we learned about supplements and some of the research behind them. And how do you, how do you create an evidence-based medicine tier to understand all the different the, you know, peer reviewed double blind placebo studies all the way to story medicine, you know, like the whole thing. And um, then we also uh, got, had Dr. Shea come in and speak to us about acupuncture because we are in Alabama. I, I know the U.S. is big, but in Alabama, we are right next to Florida where the Chi Institute is. And so it wasn't that far away for him to come visit us. Um, and so, you know, we, I literally just crafted what I wanted. And then my senior year, I had a really good relationship with the Dean of Students, um, mostly by coincidence. I just happened to be in her student learning group for like the last three years. And so I talked her into letting me do all these externships with veterinarians all over the country who were doing complementary and alternative modalities. And I managed to talk her into letting me take um, Dr. Fougere's intro to Western herbs through the CIVT um, teaching institute in Australia. And I managed to talk her into letting me hang out with Susan Weed for a couple of weeks on her farm in New York. Um, so I kind of gave myself like a mini internship in holistic medicine during my fourth year of vet school. Um, 
and I, yeah, I just went in knowing what I wanted to do and figured out how to do it. That's kind of the, the theme of how I got here. You're amazing. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I am so blessed to have found you because this is the kind of thing that I think a lot of people need to hear because a lot of times they always give excuses of why they can't do it or, you know, like, um, uh, they don't have time or they don't have the opportunity, you know, and, and somehow you managed to, to craft your holistic education as a vet, even when you were in a conventional vet school. I mean, like, you must have a really good negotiating personality, you know, like very, you must be very charming, you know, <laughs> to, to really like, like talk your way with, with your, with your, with your seniors to, to get them to yeah. agree to do all these things, you know, which yeah. is no. an extra, yeah. extra out, I out, of the do. Box, out of the box <laughs> kind of thinking. Yeah, I actually do. And that's a little, it's actually a little bit of a um, contentious point within myself. I mean, you know how your, sometimes your greatest strengths are also your, your weaknesses, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of kind of the human experience. And um, I have discovered about myself that I, I am pretty good at, I don't know what the right word is, fitting in isn't quite right, but like being acceptable to others. Um, I, that's a skill I learned when I was a kid and it was actually a consciously cultivated skill. It didn't just happen. It was something I, I wanted to figure out how to do. Um, and it's, I mean, it's fake to be honest. Like it is me consciously going out there and being like, how can I be acceptable enough that I can get what I want and still somehow true to myself? Um, and I mean, I think I mostly navigate it well. Um, and it's certainly a really good skill to have in that, like, I'm, I can meet clients where they are really easily. And that has turned out to be a real gift. Um, but I remember when I was starting my holistic medicine club, I knew I could not be, um, the hippie with the crazy ideas because then I would be rejected outright. Nobody wanted to hear what the hippie had to say because they're not sciencey enough. So instead I dressed professionally and I kept my hair really nice and I wore makeup occasionally, not every day, but sometimes. Um, and I talked about the research I'd done in grad school and I talked about Petri dishes and uh, inhibitory concentrations of antibiotics. And I um, talked about, you know, journals and going to conferences because I knew that that made me palatable. Um, and then because I could do that, then I could be like, so can we talk about mushrooms? Um, <laughs> so, so it was, it was a game I played consciously, a conscious game that I played. And I still do it all the time. I mean, just last night, I, I was working late in the ER and I, a I was doing like an evening wrap up with a client who had to leave her pet in the hospital. I'm very sick. Um, and um, she, she was crying um, and she um, said, is she scared to be there? Is she okay? 
And she didn't mean, okay, like, is she sick? Cause that's obviously why she was there. She meant, is she suffering and scared to be there? And, um, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said something like, actually, she's handling this pretty well. She's actually not shaking or trembling. And uh, we actually have her in a place where we can keep an eye on her. But what I wanted to say was close your eyes and imagine your pet surrounded by a healing white light. (laughs) (laughs) But, (laughs) but I didn't say it because I'm like, okay, rein yourself in Yunker, be normal. I think I think the word you might be looking for is I don't know a savvy politician. <laughs> Great. It is. It's it's politics that you you know it's yeah, it's it you 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 understand I think what works how the world ticks in a way, you know, the environment that you're going into that that that's that you know when you when you're going in you're looking at the animals and you're seeing like mm, what is the politics and 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 how how the beasts behave you know mm-hmm. in that sense yep. you know and you know because you know exactly what you want you find the path of least resistance to get there yeah yeah, yeah i i think that's a very good description yeah you know yeah May I ask, how old are you? Uh, I am 38. Um, I'm not a baby. <laughs> You're not a baby, but the thing is, you, I mean, the fact that when you were in school, you were already thinking this way, you know, mm. um, that's a level of maturity. Um, and the fact that you said you're not good at studying, but you found a way to study and, and, and get the prerequisites to get in. Um, I envy that. I don't know how you did that because I'm a lousy student. <laughs> I've been, will be always, you know, I, I'm the laziest bugger you can ever find. <laughs> I really am. So I admire people like you because you can, you, you can just put your, your, your blinders on and, and just yeah. laser, laser in. And somehow, would you say you're an optimist by nature? Yeah, I, I am. I'm an optimist and I'm also an idealist. In fact, um, in my second vet school interview, um, they actually asked me that very right question. What's your greatest strength and greatest weakness? And I mean, I knew the answer that you're like supposed to give um, because I'm weird and I actually studied interview questions in advance and whatever. (laughs) Um, And I was like, I'm supposed to say I'm a perfectionist because that's kind of what they want to hear. And I'm, I'm not a perfectionist though. And I actually don't think that that's healthy. And I don't think that that's what I want to perpetuate. So I said, I'm an idealist and that's my greatest weakness. And um, I realized that doesn't sound like a great weakness. However, when you're an idealist and you, you constantly expect good things, because that's the way you really think the universe is set up, then you get hurt a lot when things don't meet that expectation. And it's really hard to go through the world as an idealist. Um, And so I am a pretty practical person. And in fact, um, my husband and my best friend would tell you that my default when I'm stressed is to go to a practical place. Like, okay, what can I do next? But, um, But in my soul, I am an idealist. Um, 
and I absolutely believe the best of people and and most of the time that plays out pretty well but sometimes it doesn't and and that's hard it hurts when that doesn't happen but yeah I mean I, I think that well I was going to say that I think a lot of people in medicine at least start off as idealists and I still think that's true but I think think reality beats it out of you a lot of times, at least in conventional worlds, unless you, um, unless you look for the good, you have to be really conscious about looking for the good. And some people are better at it than others. And did vet school beat you? Did it beat it out of you? No, no, not at all. Um, actually, I was really lucky. I worked with so many really wonderful clinicians who, even if I disagreed with their methods or maybe even their ideology, they were doing such good work and they were doing it for compassionate reasons and they were not jaded and burned out. They loved working, most of them loved working with students, loved working with clients, loved working with animals. Um, and they would take you know, extra efforts to ensure comfort and peace. Um, so no, that school absolutely just reinforced it for me personally. Yeah. Wow. I'm trying to imagine you, you know, you as a wee one and, you know, you're like a strategist, you're a behavioral <laughs> psychologist kind of person, you know, um, crafting all these really good answers, by the way, for your interview. <laughs> Like you spend a lot of time thinking, don't you? <laughs> I do. I, yeah, I really have to actually do a lot of embodying um, practices because my default is to very much be in my head for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you when you finally graduated from vet school, um, you know, did you straight away zoom? I'm going to do my holistic stuff, or you know, how <sighs> what happened? So actually, this is where things got hard for me. Um, uh, so up until graduation from vet school, um, for the most part, I really didn't have anyone to answer to in any way except myself. And that allowed me to have that laser focus. But after vet school, I was facing, um, some really different challenges. Um, my husband was out of the Navy and trying to figure out what else to do with his life. Um, and so I was the only income. And, and then I have, you know, $125,000 of student loans. Um, and I was 30 years old and wanted a baby. Um, and so I decided, um, and actually I kind of got some bad advice too, um, but I decided to take the bad advice. And that was to work in a conventional practice for a little while to really understand what, um, what the scientific Western tradition can do and what its limitations are. Like understand the system and then you can figure out what your place is within it. And I actually don't think that was a good call for me, um, but it was in some ways a safe call and so that's what I did. I actually worked in corporate medicine for a couple of years um, and had my first baby and my husband decided to go to grad school himself. Um, and so I went, so I was, yeah, there was huge life transition. So I graduated in 2013, had my baby in 2014 um, and did corporate medicine for a couple of years. 
Um, it was really obvious, really obvious that I underestimated the incredible life transition that becoming a mother would be for me. Um, I thought maybe I understood <laughs> and I was real wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, there's just some things that, um, at least here in the U S our culture does not do well. And that would be the transition into motherhood is, uh, I would say pretty near the top of that list. <laughs> um, so I literally, I really, really thought I was just going to come back to work and I wanted to cut back on my hours. I wanted to cut back to 35 hours a week, um, which was a big cutback because I'd been working like 50 hours a week. And uh, I thought that would be fine. And uh, I was kind of wrong. <laughs> uh, and it became apparent really fast that I needed to change. So I actually went, I, I then worked in a a different conventional practice that was privately owned. And they actually hired me specifically because they wanted to build out a complementary and alternative veterinary medicine practice. And they wanted me to do it. And they were going to be really supportive of me doing acupuncture and me bringing in herbs. And I did, I brought in a therapeutic laser for them and I built up their supplements and had some conversations with how to talk to clients about um, supplement use and how we could do better pain management. Um, and so that was a great start. And I think I would have been happy staying there and building that out more. Um, except that then my husband got a really amazing opportunity to go to a top graduate program and we decided to take it. And so we moved and we moved to a state where I didn't know anyone, no one at all. I had no professional connections and we did, we needed to keep a steady income. Um, and I kind of got lucky in the a Facebook group that I was in. <laughs> I basically was like, does anybody know anybody in North Carolina? Because I really need a job. <laughs> and, um, uh, somebody said, Hey, send me your resume and I'll see like, what might be a good fit for you in the area. I've lived here a really long time and I kind of know everybody. Um, so I sent her a resume and we decided that I had two days. I was going to leave my 18 month old and my husband alone for two days and drive up here and find us a place to live and, and see if I could find a place to do job interviews and then go home. Um, like it was going to be intense. Uh, it was cause it was a gosh, how long a drive was that? I don't know, like a 12 hour drive each way oh. or something. Um, and I did, I managed to find us a place to live. And I then came um, to, at the time it was called Animal Emergency Center of Cary and uh, got in a, like we had like a sort of like a lunch date um, and she showed me her practice and we kind of talked about the area and different parts of town and all kind of like just logistical stuff. And then she's like, hey, you want to work here? <laughs> I mean, I was like literally wearing like a t-shirt and like cut off capris and sandals, no makeup. I was not a job interview. It was like literally like, let's hang out for lunch while you're house hunting. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, so I don't know actually want to work in an emergency practice. I did some emergency uh, work in vet school and I don't want to do that. And she's like, okay, okay. But let me hear me out. Hear me out. You could do a condensed schedule of three days a week so that you don't have to pay for as much a daycare and you can be home more. And because I'm building out a rehabilitation practice, 
you could get on board with the rehabilitation practice and get your acupuncture certification and start pursuing holistic medicine as part of the rehabilitation practice. And I was like, actually, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so um, at the time there were like, she was in the process of hiring a lot of people cause they were expanding. And uh, when I started, basically everybody who worked there was a mother of young children looking for flexibility in their hours. And that was actually really refreshing for me to be in that particular phase of life and to be surrounded by other moms who were doing the career thing and the mom thing at the same time. Um, and it's common in veterinary medicine, but we don't all do it gracefully. Um, and so I think that learning from each other is really helpful. Um, and so that's kind of actually where I am now, except that my, I, I have built out the holistic side of the practice more. Um, and I still haven't gotten my acupuncture certification. That actually has been a really big challenge for me. Um, having to fly or drive somewhere multiple times a year and put out that much money as a single income family um, has really been harder than I thought it was going to be. And so even though I graduated, a, I mean, a really long time ago now, I mean, I guess it's long for me, like eight years ago. <laughs> yeah. Eight years in vet med. Um, I'll tell you, I'm pretty burned out on emergency vet. That's for sure. Um, some of that's COVID. Some of that's the fact that I never really wanted to do emergency in the first place. And it's not really my thing. Um, and, but I really love what I've been able to bring to the table for holistic medicine. And, um, I, once again, I kind of knew what I wanted to do and I've been trying to figure out how to do it. Um, because um, most of the people, not everybody, there's most of the holistic veterinarians I know work in a general practice, um, meaning that they, they see, uh, wellness patients, they see sick patients, um, and they integrate supplements and laser and acupuncture into that. Um, and then I do know some people who sort of put themselves as specialists and they do just traditional Chinese medicine. Um, and they don't really do kind of the wellness care side of it. And I knew that was more what I wanted to do. It's not that I have anything against the primary care side of it, but I knew that I wanted to be able to take the time to really put in individualized medicine, um, in a way that a 15 to 30 minute office visit just can't do. Um, and so I wanted to offer specialty level care, um, and then of course you get major imposter syndrome because it's like, well, I don't have extra letters after my name and I didn't do, you know, a fancy internship in a university. So how do I, how do I navigate this? Um, and that, that was the hardest part was kind of putting it out there and being like, all right, this is how I'm doing it. This is what I'm charging. This is what I'm doing and let's just see what happens. Um, and it was a slow build. It really took so much networking before I had those first few clients um, who were kind of willing to take the risk and be like, okay, I want this bad enough that I'm going to go with this veterinarian who no one I know has ever heard of. <laughs> you know, like I don't have a big brand behind me or anything. And, um, and it, 
it it's, was a slow build, but I've been working on it now for a little over two years and it's, it's, ta it's doing well. Um, I would say that I have figured out its limitations, the, the limitations of this particular model, and I'm having to kind of work my way through those. Um, and at, at the moment, my biggest limitation is that being in, an, in, in a practice that has both ER and holistic and being a contract employee means that if the ER right now has more demand, I'm kind of limited in what I can do. So right now I'm literally limited by the fact that I can't get enough office space or enough hours to see the clients I want to see. Um, and in fact, I was, I'm a little hesitant to even do much marketing or networking right now, which of course now I'm on a podcast, so we'll see how that goes. But <laughs> um, because I, like, I don't know how many more clients I can see without really compromising my quality of life. Um, and it, that's something I see all over VetMed all the time in every version of it. And it's been my challenge since, I don't know, middle school being like, okay, how do I not completely lose myself and still pursue my dream? Um, because most of the people I know kind of do it be the dream becomes who they are. And, um, as somebody who is a kind of a, a creative and somebody who really values motherhood, I don't want to pretend like other people don't value motherhood. That didn't come out right. Um, but it is a defining aspect of myself and someone who really, really sees the value of a holistic lifestyle. Um, I don't want to push myself to the point of burnout. And it is the norm in veterinary medicine, even among holistic practitioners. They do it from a place of compassion. They do it from a place of wanting to make the world a better place. Um, and they do it using the pretty language of traditional Chinese medicine and um, Ayurvedic medicine and uh, local tribal medicine, but at the end of the day, they're still losing themselves to it. And I don't want to. And so it make, there's not a lot of models out there for how to do that. Why, why do you think, you know, it's so important to you to retain this, your identity, this quality mm. of life? Why? Um, because I think you have to bring your whole self to the table. Um, all of those other parts of myself are valuable too. Um, and when we can be all of us in any particular setting without having to hold parts of ourselves back and without having to fragment ourselves, we have more resources at our disposal. And so for instance, um, what I, one of the things I've figured out is that, and this is a real, this is a really important aspect of it when I'm in the ER, um, people are making really important big decisions quickly. Um, they don't have time to go home and really think about it, meditate on it. They have to make the decision now. And big financial decisions and literally life and death decisions. It's intense. And um, they 
a lot of people ask me, what would you do? I mean, I get this question almost every day. And it's, and I, I have figured out that actually it does not matter what I would do. And um, because this is a situation I cannot possibly understand from their perspective. I can't. I, I can have tons of empathy in my heart for the situation, but I'm not there. I can't look at their bank account. I can't look at their familial relationships. I can't look back and see how we got to this point and what relationship they have with that animal. And I can't see what the ramifications of their choice are going forward. And when I can explain that to them and I can, I can kind of lay it out and I can say, here's the things you need to take into account when you're thinking about this. But also none of those things are things I even have access to. I don't even know those things about you. Um, then it, A, it helps them think through it, but it also gives them permission. It gives them permission to not say yes to the $7,000 treatment plan that will completely ruin their finances and has a 5% chance of success. And I think people need that. They need permission sometimes. I mean, not, not everybody needs it, but some people are, are conditioned enough in our culture, in our society, in our world, that the doctor is such an authority figure that they need permission from that person to say, okay, I don't want to do this. Um, and I got there, not because that's what the textbook told me, not because that's what some clinician um, in vet school told me, not because that's what an employer told me. There's never been a book that told me that. I got there because at one point I, sorry, I'm about to get emotional. <laughs> I was nursing a baby um, and trying to tube feed my cat in renal failure at the same time on my only day off that week. And my husband wasn't home because he was also trying to meet some incredible demands placed on him by his academic program. And in this moment, I realized even though I have the knowledge to do this, I can't do this. And um, I could put my cat in the ICU for a few days and spend thousands of dollars so that I can have her for another few months. But I am still in debt from my labor and delivery and I'm still a single income and it's not gonna end anytime soon. And so even though I am a professional veterinarian and a holistic veterinarian, I have to stop. And um, that lived experience, that being able to bring my entire self to my job um, with compassion for the client and the animal is why I don't wanna compartmentalize my life and I don't wanna lose who I am. Um, and I wish that more people had the option to do that, either that they gave themselves permission to do it or that they didn't feel like they would be punished for doing it because I think it's really valuable. Thank <laughs> you.
Wow, that was kind of intense. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think what what you just said it hits home for a lot of people. It definitely hits home for me because I I don't earn a lot of money myself. You know, I'm a I'm a volunteer animal rescuer. So um, as you should know, animal rescue work <laughs> is not cheap. It's so it's so heart intensive sometimes. Um, we get I think so many people I know in the rescue world, they, they get so burnt out and and distressed and muddled and they lose their way. The depression, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. is, is very real. You know, the fatigue is there. Um, and so many people get so messed up. You know, I always tell people there's a very fine line between a rescuer and a hoarder. Mm. Oh, yeah. And yeah because I work with a lot of uh, low income cases and we do deal with uh, as we like to call them politically correct now, multi-cat households instead of Mm -hmm. hoarders. But you know, you can see there is so much uh, besides the financial burden, the, the, the mental illness usually that, you know, creates all this. Um, and it's always not just about the animals. There's always, you know, the human component that like you talk about being a mom, you're nursing and then you're, you're, you're trying to save this kitty, you know, uh, this animal. And, and then the reality of everything sinks in, you know, it's like, I think what you just shared is very powerful because I think everyone who's listening in right now, they, they will be able to identify and relate to that. And yeah. not many people are willing to talk about it. And that's what drew me to you in the first place, you know, when, when I found you on online, um, was the fact that you're very raw, you're very authentic, you're very real, you know, you don't, you don't sugarcoat, you don't, you don't put the makeup on and, and pretend, you know what I mean? You, you just bear it all for everyone to see. And that spoke to me because I think, a lot of people think with social media nowadays, they think like, oh, it's all pretty and, you know, and fancy, you know. Um, I mean, like, when you talk about, like, raw feeding, everyone has a pretty bowl on, on their Instagram. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but those little, those little, like, um, silicone things where you can make the, the little paw shapes, yeah. little hearts. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't even have time to do that. You know, my, my bowl is all, like, it's all messed up and that's it. Throw it in. And like <laughs> what goes in will come out the same way anyway. <laughs> so long as you're getting your nutrients, good for you. <laughs> you know, I'm like, thank God I can afford this. <laughs> you know? Oh my um, God, yes. You know, so I I just I just feel that you're a very real person. And that's why I I wanted to interview you. For some reason. I I mean like this whole conversation wasn't even staged, you know, you know, I mean, like, and, and I just feel very, very touched and honored that you were willing to share because I think so many people, especially now with COVID and, you know, with the economy and everyone's all this uncertainty right now, you know, everyone's trying to be, keep a very, I would say a facade outside, you know, especially on social media, like everything's okay, you know, Um, but everyone's actually struggling. It's just that no one wants to talk about it or, you know, Mm -hmm. acknowledge it. And I love, I respect the fact that, you know, you're not afraid to hide from that. 
My husband said something last week um, that I didn't really like at first because um, I'm like, that's not true. I, I've got my crap together and that was <laughs> just not at all true. <laughs> but, um, but he said, he's like, I think I just had this realization. It's like epiphany. He's like duct tape. It's all about duct tape. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, everyone's lives are just held together with duct tape. Like we, we go through looking like we've got it all together and that somehow if you didn't file your taxes on time or you forgot to feed the dog or you, you know, you're late to work that you must be falling apart when the reality is everyone, every single person has like cobbled together what they're trying to make work we're held together with duct tape. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> He's a smart cookie, that one. <laughs> he is. He is. <laughs> what, 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 what is he pursuing? What, what is he studying? What's he, um, he is a historian of all things. Um, and he also has a master's degree in international affairs, political science. Um, and he has a bachelor's degree in 19th century history. Um, so he's, he's a smart cookie for sure. So the two of you brainiacs who are, you know, like really in your thinking, creating mm. words, 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 your, your yeah. kids are going to be ultra fine, smart cookies. <laughs> I mean, it's probably true, but it's also interesting because we, we've taken this approach of unschooling and forest schooling and very somatic experiences for our kids, yoga and earthing, um, because we recognize that those are aspects of ourselves that we kind of struggle with. And um, we don't really want them to feel like that there's this concept of success that is defined by academics and income. Um, and, and so we're, we're really having to unschool ourselves at the end of the day is what we're doing. We're unschooling ourselves and saying like, wow, we are so good at being in the brain. Like we're real good at this. <laughs> However, there's a lot more to life. Than that. <laughs> and let's, let's try to present all the options to our kids so that they don't feel like if they weren't straight A students, and if they don't have the word doctor after their, before their name, and they don't have a bunch of letters that somehow they're lesser. Um, so it's a, it's a really conscious choice that we've made because both of us are so in our heads for sure. So why, 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 why herbs? Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, so that one is actually almost a separate question. Um, I mean, they, like they, obviously they came together in my life, but so going back to when I was a kid, um, my mother has um, a disease called fibromyalgia, um, which is a chronic pain syndrome. Um, and she was, she had the first signs of that um, within a couple years of my youngest brother being born when she was in her mid thirties. Um, and I was, I'm barely old enough that I can remember kind of what she was like before that and what she was like after that. My brothers unfortunately only have memories of what she was like after that. Um, and um, and she is my introduction to the world of complementary and alternative medicine, because when you deal with a chronic pain syndrome and for a while, your doctors just tell you it doesn't exist. And then when they do tell you it exists, they don't have anything that they will actually fix it. Um, you start looking for alternatives. And so 
my parents had a ton of supplements around our house at any given time. And my mom did massage and chiropractic and, and some other kinds of body work in an attempt to kind of make, keep herself as functional as possible for as long as possible. Um, and my dad, uh, he's an engineer. And so he's also very much in his head <laughs> and um, really did some like bought books on the topic so that he could try to understand it from sort of a booky uh, point of view. And so I was, I had stuff in my house and books on the topic when I was a kid. Um, and as I got older and could read better, I would just randomly just go pull books off the shelf. And I remember one of them in particular was like healing powers of the rainforest and just sounded so magical, you know? Um, and then you combine that with my love of David, the gnome and <laughs> like, it just sort of like herbs were always on my mind. Um, Anytime I was learning about science, I wanted to understand the plants and the animals like that. They just sort of, they were separate, but they, they, I, that's the two things I wanted out of my education. Um, and once again, even in high school, when I was like, okay, so if I want to be a veterinarian, you've got this kind of like really, really sciencey track, which is like chemistry and physics. And I was like, oh, that's hard. Or you could do like biology and animals. But I was like, okay, so I have to do a little bit of both because I need the creds to get into vet school. But I really still want to do this stuff over here. <laughs> so I was like, let's do a summer marine biology program. Let's do a extra project on, you know, some local herb. Um, and so I sort of crafted my own education to the extent that you can within a public school system, which is not much, but, um, and, uh, and so I just sort of, I mean, really herbs were like a little sprinkling add on to everything else I was doing for a really long time. And I was super intimidated by using herbs, super intimidated. And then, um, when I was at Auburn, so I was already in vet school. Um, I went, as soon as I moved to Auburn, I had to like, where's the natural health food store? Like priorities people. I need to figure out where I'm going to eat. Um, and so I check out our little itty bitty tiny local health food co-op and they have a little section of books and they had two of Susan's books there and they had healing wise. Um, and so I picked up her healing wise book, um, which I highly recommend to anyone because it is so beautiful and user-friendly. Um, and it goes through like several herbs in like great detail um, and, and really like practical ways to use them and harvest them and what they look like at different times of the year. It's pretty cool. Um, and I was like, okay, this, this kind of breaks it down for me in a way that's not really scary. And I started learning how to actually identify just like five verbs. That's it. Just like five, like walking down the street. And I was still too scared to actually use them in that way, but at least I knew what they were. And then I could go to the health food store and I could get things that had those herbs in them. And so I sort of dabbled a little, like just a little, but then when I did my, um, my, what she would call an apprentice, my, my mini apprenticeship with Susan Erd, Susan weed and what the vet school called my externship with Susan weed. I was a, you know, it's a fully immersive experience. And that's what I wanted because I was like, I don't think I'm really going to understand this until I'm in it. So I, um, I just lived the whole life for two weeks, completely integrated, like almost all of her food is grown by local farmers. All of her, I mean, she does buy um, feed for her goats, but like so much of this is like locally sourced, locally used. 
Um, and then she's regenerative farming. The goats are literally improving the land that she lives on. And you can see the difference over in, in pictures from when she acquired the farm versus where she is now. Um, and you can see it in her goats, the way that over the generations, she has created this very healthy line of goats. Um, and so, I mean, when you could see it all together and she was demonstrating it to me and how simple it was and teaching me how to use my wildflower guide so that I could identify plants and use them in, in these very practical, quick and easy ways. Um, I was like, oh, this is completely a lifestyle I can do. I can do this. And then, you know, I go back to my apartment in Auburn and everything is sprayed with chemicals and I actually really couldn't. But <laughs> but I knew what it looked like. And then basically I've spent the last 10 years trying to recreate it, <laughs> which is actually really hard, even when you know what you're going for. Um, but it gave me so much confidence to just start using herbs. And then I just started experimenting and I, I basically lost my fear completely. And I'll just be like, Hmm, Oh, look, I, I have a sty on my eye. Oh my God. I can use an herb. And like, I got so excited. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, my cat got an abscess a couple years ago. I actually talked about this one on Instagram and I was like, oh my gosh, I can use herbs on the cat. I'm so excited. <laughs> and, um, and so over time you just gain confidence with it. And it, it was all about just losing the fear is what it was for me. Some of the practical parts of it, but really just losing the fear. And that's, that's what I try to do. Like when I do my herbs for kids classes, um, I, it's all about just letting kids experiment like here taste this just put it in your mouth and see what you think of it and uh, now put it in water and see what you think of it okay now let's mix it with some honey and see what you think of it like letting them experiment without a right or wrong or an expectation of what it should be um and i think that that's probably the the way we should all approach herbalism instead of approaching it as oh my gosh i'm gonna kill myself if i take too much of this like that is so incredibly unlikely <laughs> Really, it's really like, you're not gonna kill yourself taking too much of it, like that's not what works. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, that's so funny. But so you, you both, you and your husband have consciously, I mean, like got married, long distance marriage, you know, pursuing your dreams, coming together again, having children, mm -hmm. uh, consciously you know planning like you know how you want to educate your 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 kids how you want them to to face the wall as they grow up you know um would you what would you say would be your biggest challenge today <clears throat> today mm. um in some ways, I'm kind of in the most challenging phase of my life um, because there's a lot of decisions to make and making decisions when you don't feel like you have all the information is hard. Um, and so I would say that trying to decide how do I figure out how much, how much of my attention and energy needs to be put into financial um, stability uh, versus um, professional, I don't know even what the right word is for the professional part of it, like skills, but also like consciously building that aspect of my life 
because I want to, I want to be able to serve more people. It is so fulfilling. Like it's so fulfilling. Um, and those things are not entirely related because you'd think that, okay, well, if you just do more of what you like, then you make more money doing what you like, and then you are more financially stable. Yay. Um, except it doesn't really quite work that way because that means I have to back off on the sure thing, the hourly paycheck and reach for the less sure thing. And that's really scary. Um, when other people are relying on you anyway. Um, and then, um, at the same time, um, my husband and I have been married for almost 14 years and we were friends for another like seven years before that. So, uh, we, we have a lot of history behind us. And so we can, we can skate through some, some tough times. Like we've got enough history behind us. We, things don't have to be roses for us to stay together. Um, but I mean, we do need to put work into our relationship. Otherwise we lose ourselves to our kids and our careers. Um, and so that's important, you know? Um, and I do know a lot of people who, who took for granted that relationship and, and it, it didn't, didn't work the way they wanted it to. Um, and then at the same time, my kids are only little for a little while. Like, I don't want to miss out on, you know, kindergarten mom teas and, um, you know, afternoons at the lake with the kids, you know, like, so how do you, how do you know? how to balance those things. And I actually don't think you do. I don't think that balance is a thing. I know that's really big in traditional Chinese medicine is balancing all the things. I think it's completely made up. I don't think you ever balance anything. I think the yin yang symbol is a lot more appropriate. You're constantly moving. Things are constantly flowing and changing and a little bit of this and a little bit of that are all mixed together. Um, and um, I, I, I follow a podcast called the slow, the slow home podcast. Um, and she talks a lot about tilting and about how, if you picture like, um, life is sort of like you're standing on a big disc, like a plate, you're standing on a plate and it's balanced on a pedestal in the middle. And you have all these demands placed on you, all these weights, and you can tilt in any direction at any time. Um, but you're never balanced. Like there's no way you've, you're ever going to be balanced. It's always going to tilt one direction or another. And you just have to consciously shift your weight to do it. Um, and I'm in a phase right now where there's just, I mean, there's just so many different demands. It's the opposite of vet school where vet school was like laser focused. And it was like, this is the thing you are doing now. Now it's more like, no, no, no. There's like a hundred things you should be doing. <laughs> I don't, I don't really know how you figure that out <laughs> at any given moment. I don't know. It feels like you just sort of jump from one emergency to another and you're like, what's the thing that's the most critical and about to fall apart right now? That's the thing you should do. <laughs> so what, what do you do to, you know, like, do you have a, a daily routine or something to help you prep your day or decompress at the end of the day? Mm. Uh, at this particular moment in time, I don't, um, I need one, <laughs> uh, historically I have, and it's been, it's changed so much. Um, I mean, literally it changes all the time, but I always try to have something I'm doing and uh, I'm kind of between things right now. Historically, I have really enjoyed doing some kind of morning meditation. Um, even if it's 
kind of brief. I am not a morning exercise person. I tried that and I was like, no. So, but morning meditation tends to work well for me. Um, And I, I guess I do have sort of an accidental routine before I go in the house after work. I sit in my car for a little while (laughs) and every parent listening understands this. Calm before the storm. (laughs) Yes. You have to like prepare yourself to walk in that door. Um, (laughs) So I do, I like, and I listen to a lot of podcasts because I have a pretty good commute. Um, And so I I just turn off the podcast so that it's literally just silence for a few minutes and I just sort of sit there. And sometimes I like actually meditate and sometimes I just sit there in silence (laughs) Um, and then I go in the house. I guess that's my, my current thing I'm doing, but I do drink a lot of tea. I use a lot of adaptogenic herbs. Um, and I rotate through them. It's not like I have one formula I'm using, but like I use a lot of them. Um, I try to use little breaks throughout the day to get up and walk around and stretch. Um, I try to, so I have, I, I, have a breast pump. I pump when I'm at work. Um, and one of the things I do is while I'm pumping, I try to limit working and I try to limit scrolling through socials when I'm doing that so that it's giving me a break mentally for that period of time, at least somewhat. Um, and I mean, I cheat and I absolutely work through that sometimes, but, um, that's something I try to do is use those enforced breaks to actually take a break. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, this is a weird phase of life where between having a, a, a newborn and working full-time, I mean, there's, there's just not a lot of space around the edges for true self-care practices. Um, and, uh, it'll come back, you know, as babies become a little bit more independent, um, there will be more time for it again. I've done it twice before. I know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, <laughs> but this is not that time. <laughs> uh, so you've, how old are your children? Um, my eldest is six, okay. uh, six and a half. And, uh, the youngest is 12 weeks on Monday. So 11 and a half week, I guess, weeks. Um, and then my daughter in the middle is three. Um, and, uh, because we homeschooled this year, nobody's in school. So we've got, we've got both littles home. Um, and, uh, then the babies is new. (laughs) They keep us busy for sure. And then we've got kitties. So, uh, we have three kitties. We have Miri, the wonder cat, um, or Maria, Catherine Yunker, meerkat. Um, and she was our first that we adopted within weeks of getting married. Um, so she's almost 14. And then we have Tara, the terrorist who, uh, is a classic veterinarian story of you tried to save the kitten and things got expensive. And after you and the owner both got completely tapped out, you ended up with her. Um, (laughs) classic story, (laughs) classic. Yeah. Everybody's got one. Um, and uh, she's made me regret it ever since. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and then we have Fritz. Fritz was not a conscious acquisition. Fritz came with the farm that we live on and we did not know that he came with the farm. And so we're like, why is this cat always here? And then my <laughs> landlord is like, oh yeah, the previous tenant left him behind. <laughs> and I'm like, what? We haven't even been feeding him. Oh my God, this poor cat. Uh, so Fritz became ours. And he is the farm cat and he will probably remain with the farm whenever we leave someday. Um, but in the meantime, he gets fed a really lovely raw food diet with herbs added. And um, he gets, you know, treated when he gets sick and he gets let into the office when it's cold and he is quite cushy for a farm cat. <laughs> oh, so, you know, Cats, cats and herbs. What's that? What's that combination like? Because I think there's some people oh. who are scared about herbs. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. So that's a good question. I actually had a an Instagram post about this recently. It was like I don't remember five ways to get herbs into your cats or something. Um, so uh, cats and herbs can go really well together. And in fact, I, I believe that in nature cats have quite a bit of access to herbs. Um, there's cat gardens where you can plant various herbs and cats really like aromatic herbs. I think that they kind of self-select for aromatic herbs given the choice. Um, I This is a whole other story, but I temporarily worked at Big Cat Rescue in Tampa, Florida. Nice. <laughs> <before that> school. <laughs> and um, when they're doing enrichment with their cats, they frequently use aromatic herbs um, and they stick them and they have bigger cats than we do, obviously, but they stick them inside toilet paper loops with like a paper towel on each side. And those things theoretically are entirely edible and biodegradable. And even if a cat ate the whole thing, it would be okay. Um, and so the cats love the smell and they'll rub all over it and they'll bat it around and stuff. So that stuff, that's like some a fun way that just sort of proved to me that cats and aromatics are a good combination. Um, and so that's one easy way just to make it fun. That's less medicinal. Um, but you can add dried and fresh herbs to cat's food. Um, you have to experiment to figure out what they're going to be into. Um, but things like rosemary are pretty well tolerated by most cats. And you'll see actually rosemary is included in a lot of cat treats commercially on the market. Um, and so we do in the morning, my cats get a raw food diet. And then in the evening, they get a cooked food diet mostly because my husband just really enjoys cooking for the cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we add a blend of nourishing herbs to their cat food. And when I say nourishing herbs, I'm actually speaking of a specific kind of style of herbs that Susan Weed spends a lot of time talking about. And these are herbs that are safe to use in very large amounts for very long periods of time. Um, things like nettles and red clover um, and uh, oat straw. Um, there's, I mean, there's, there's a list of them and actually you're, you can go check out my blogs and I actually talk about them. Um, but uh, we make nourishing herbal infusions, which are like really, really strong brews of herbs. Um, and we'll add those to cat food sometimes, especially if a cat's been sick and we're trying to get them to recover, we'll add it in. And I actually think this is a biologically appropriate, you know, when, when we go back and I said that I really emphasize biologically appropriate, I, I see cats eat greens all the time out in nature. And I see them rub against aromatics and roll around in the garden all the time in nature. And I see them eat the guts 
I mean, Fritz, my farm cat brings us stuff all the time and he frequently eats the guts and those little mice are eating all kinds of greens and grains that they find. Um, and the cats are getting that in small amounts and in fermented amounts that are sort of like bra broken down so that their bodies can utilize them. And so if we cook herbs really well, or we are doing other things to get extracted constituents from those herbs, then I think that is a biologically appropriate way to get them into cat's diets in small amounts. I do not think that they need larger amounts of vegetables in the same way that I think dogs can sometimes benefit from. Um, and so we also add tinctures in. Now tinctures you do have to be careful with in cats simply because they have a strong taste. Um, and some cats will just refuse to eat them. And that's really challenging for an herbalist. <laughs> Um, but my cats, because I've been trying to ro do rotational feeding for their entire lives and intentionally introduce them to things on a regular basis that are weird to them, they're pretty tolerant of eating most things that are presented to them. Even if they don't eat it on the first try, if I keep offering it over the course of a couple of weeks, they'll eventually eat it. Um, and, uh, that's a conscious effort that I made based upon being in the veterinary industry for a long time now. I'm like, no, no, I am not going to have a cat that gets down to one flavor of crappy canned food. And then I'm trying to figure out how to get pills into it. Like, no, absolutely not. Um, so that was, fortunately, I had that enough life experience to, from the very beginning, start a, an effort to keep my cats from getting picky. Um, and then, and then you, can, you can do a little bit of fresh herbs with cats in their food, uh, but that is gonna be harder. Some of them are gonna vomit. They're not gonna digest it well. Um, some of them will just outright refuse it. So that one is more hit or miss and dependent upon the individual. Um, same with dried herbs, but, uh, nourishing herbal infusions and teas and, uh, a little bit of tinctures and then definitely having access to fresh stuff that they can just self-select and roll in or put in toys, things like that. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. I actually put herbs in my cat's food as well. I have a mini, well, I, I live in a small apartment, like under, under 800 square feet kind of thing. Um, I've got 12 cats and one dog living with me. Um, but what wow. I do, well, I have a cat super highway, so a lot of environmental cool. en enrichment yeah. for them. So I don't step on them all awesome. the time. Um, nice, I like it. <laughs> so with them, because they're raw fat, I actually put in some herbs, um, and you're talking about teas and infusion, right? I actually do that because I drink a lot of herbal teas. So mm -hmm. I normally share my, 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 my herbal teas with them. Oh, that's a great way to do it. Yeah. You know, so I would just add like a couple of like teaspoons kind of thing into their, their raw food and mix it all. Like I, I use like a lot of catnip, organic catnip. Yeah. Um, I don't grow it because I stay in a flat, but I, I buy it from, you know, like organic tea like her mm -hmm. herbal tea. So I know that it's safe for me, it's safe for them. So yep. I will sprinkle it into their food. So I, you know, so I do some rotations as well. And I find that they do actually enjoy it and they seem to do better with a little mm -hmm. bit of um, herbal vegetable, like fiber kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. You know, so I'm really yeah, glad I, you- I, I will say, I, I, I love- the idea of just adding catnip to their lives just as a matter of course, I think that's a great idea. I mean, cause especially in a, in an environment like you have where a lot of these cats are, 
it's not like they have like the world's best genetics or something, or that they have these great starts in life, you know, um, and that uh, catnip has some really great like anti-anxiety kind of properties to it. Plus, you know, just antioxidants there in any kind of plant. That's a great idea. Yeah, well, because I stay in a small confined flat because they're all they're kept strictly indoors. I stay on the 20th floor. Right. <clears throat> so to minimize the stress because, you know, cat politics. Mm-hmm. And when you have 12 cats, oh, yeah. you know, uh, there's space, there's mm-hmm. a lot of space, but still, you know, you have, you, <laughs> oh, have, yeah. you have the hustlers and then you've got the loners and then you've got, you know, shit happening. So true. So when I was in grad school at Corpus Christi, Texas, um, they, because it is a very warm place um, right on the Gulf coast, um, right next to Texas, I mean, right next to Mexico, um, there is a feral cat colony that's just there year round all the time. And there are some people who come and care for those cats, but I took an animal behavior class and decided that my class project was going to be, um, studying the feral cats. And it was kind of a Jane Goodall inspired observational sort of thing where I would like sit around and literally just keep a journal and record all kinds of things. And actually did study how she did it so that I could make it all sciencey and stuff, but mostly just got, got to sit around and hang out with cats all day. Um, And it was really cool to see their social interactions. Like they have these like clearly defined spaces that they're comfortable in, but then they have these areas of overlap. And then they have these, um, I mean, really cool, like social body language that they use where, well, they're, I mean, just like dogs, people think that cats don't have these social skills. They absolutely do. And, you know, they, they, you have your dominant ones and your submissive ones, and you have your ones that do play behaviors as a way of being accepted and invited into a group. And everybody would like, um, defer to the kittens, which I thought was fascinating in this particular group. So like these little kittens that had been dumped, um, all of these grown up cats who were not related to these kittens would just let them first at the food bowl. It was really fascinating. Um, I learned, I learned so much from that. And the only research I could find that was like relevant and like it, like in a peer reviewed journal level was from like somebody in Japan who was studying feral cat colonies in a city. And I was like, literally, that's is it? Me and this like one guy in Japan? Like... <laughs> oh, you, you know, Dr. Emily, you're a very, very interesting lady. You really, truly are. I love your brain. Your noggin is so, it, it, it's, it's fascinating. You know, I, I, hmm. If I was a fly in your home, it would be interesting to listen to the conversations that you're having with your <laughs> husband and your kids, you know, at the same with the animals. It, it's going to be very, very interesting conversations going on there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Uh, actually, earlier today, we were discussing the different types of face masks in Thai dance, of all things. <laughs> I, like I mean, you that. never know what's going to come up when you're unschooling. So, oh, <laughs> uh, that's so cool. That is cool. Oh, uh, Dr. Emily, I oh, do want to ask you. So, who inspires you? Oh, um, oh, there's so many people who inspire me. Um, um, and as a general statement, people who make unconventional choices, not just to be unconventional, but because they're being true to themselves. Um, so I, I mean, Susan Weed is very high on my list of inspirations. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with every single thing she's ever said, but 
the way she chooses to live her life and the way she makes decision and goes through the world is very inspirational to me. Um, then, um, Jane Goodall, uh, she was a huge influence on me when I was in like middle school and high school and college and I've read all of her books. Um, Temple Grandin, who, um, is a, an autistic who is a wonderful writer and has an incredible emotional connection to animals and pretty much created the concept in, in our current Western understanding of it, of um, ethical animal treatment in food animals. Um, and uh, I find her work very inspirational. Um, animals in Translation is, is her book. And I just want to like explain a little bit more about that one because it's very different than any topic we've discussed. Um, it basically is like the way that she communicates with animals because of the unique way that her brain works. Um, once she explains it, it really helps other people to understand communication between animals and to understand the way their own brains work, especially people who may be neurodivergent. Um, it's really, really fascinating. Uh, and then um, one of my parenting inspirations uh, is Rachel Rainbolt um, from Sage Family uh, Parenting, um, who I really appreciate the way that she and her husband have consciously cultivated their life and made some very non-traditional choices um, to support themselves. Um, there's also, oh, I'm blanking on a last name here because I know this person from Facebook and so I mostly think of their first name, Jamie <laughs> from Waldorf on Fire. Uh, Waldorf is a really cool educational system that kind comes from the Rudolf Steiner um, Anthroposophy School. Um, but Waldorf on Fire is specifically Waldorf applied uh, in a modern context where you're dealing with neurodivergence and gender diversity and um, racial and cultural constructs and, um, really pushing the boundaries. And, and I think that Jamie's work is really incredible. Um, and then from a veterinary standpoint, um, I would say that even though I've never met him, Richard Pitcairn's work was really foundational for me. And so, and currently, um, Dr. Richard Palmquist, uh, who I, I have met several times and who I do follow on Instagram for his poetry. Um, I think that the way the when I heard how he got into veterinary medicine, he started off very, very conventional, but then wanted to understand why these holistic veterinarians were getting different outcomes and better outcomes. And he applied, he opened his mind and applied himself to understanding it. And I mean, that is, if the rest of us could be like, this is different than I expect it to be. But instead of being afraid of it and pushing against it, I'm going to seek to understand it. Oh my God, the world would be a better place. So I find that incredibly inspirational. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a nice list, I think. <laughs> I will also plug uh, Josie Bug here because I recently actually met her and I think she's awesome. And, um, I'm actually working with her on her reverence project. Um, 
And uh, I, I do, I find her very inspirational to listen to when she talks. I'm like, oh man, this is my people. <laughs> yeah, I like her a lot. I, I did interview her recently as well for reference as well. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. cool. I love her a lot. She's she's one of my favorites. <laughs> we can we can talk and talk and talk. It's, 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 yeah. it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> really, really cool. Ah, okay. So nice to know you're also taking part in reverence. Yeah. Uh, awesome, awesome, awesome. Very nice. Well, Dr. E, it's been a real pleasure and honor like speaking to you today. I think I wish I had more time with you, uh, but I know time, you know, duty calls for you soon. Yeah. But thank you so much for making the time and spending the time talking to me and yakking with me and sharing your story. <laughs> uh, you have a beautiful brain. It, you know, um, I... I wish you well, you and your family. <clears throat> and I want to thank you on behalf of all the pet parents that you've helped, you know, and all the animals that you help, you know, thank you very much for all that you've done for them because we need more people like you who think out wow. of the box. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> wow. I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you, and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.